Our scripture reading for this morning, our sermon text, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles, to Leviticus chapter 18. Uh, If you've been with us, you know that we've been working through the book of Leviticus. We're not just diving into one chapter in the middle of Leviticus, but we've been working through it uh, week after week, and we've made it up to chapter 18 this week. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles outside, out the doors, just on the table, so feel free to grab one of those if you need one. Let me, uh, let me pray for us as we turn to God's Word this morning. Our Father, we, uh, we thank You for Your Word. Uh, we, thank you for, um, we thank You for Your Spirit. And we know that it's only by Your Spirit that we can understand Your Word and rightly apply it to our own hearts and lives. And Father, we pray that you would work in us now by your Spirit, that you would pour out your Spirit on our midst, that you would soften our hearts to be receptive, receptive to your Word, that you would draw us closer to you, closer to your Son, Jesus, this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Leviticus chapter 18. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, brought up in your father's family, since she is your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister, she is your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother, that is, you shall not approach his wife, she is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter. And you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. You shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Do not make yourself unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. 
but you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the sojourner who so stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge, never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Well, on some level, I think every Christian realizes that Christians are to be different from the world. That's easier said than done, of course. Uh, it's, for one, it's, it's hard to be different because it takes effort to go against the grain. Uh, it's, a, it's uncomfortable to be different. It's much easier to conform, to fit in. It's also hard to know why. Why be different? What, what, what does being different accomplish? Why do we have to stand out after all? Are we being different for the sake of being different? It's also hard to know where to draw the line. I mean, especially if, if you're just being different for the sake of being different, uh, how different do we need to be? I mean, different in everything, different in some things. To take that even a half step further, I mean, it's hard to know in what way we are to be different. I mean, sometimes what people do in the name of standing out for Jesus, I mean, it, it may seem that we're just to do odd and out of the ordinary things, just to be noticed. I mean, you know the old saying, uh, bad press is better than no press. Sometimes I think the language of being different is actually just wrong language to use. And so you may wonder, well, why are you using it? Well, our text begins in Leviticus 18, verse 3, and it says, You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. And so there's this immediate call in Leviticus 18 to be different, to be different from the world around you. And so that's what we're going to explore this morning. This call, you can see in your outline, it's on the back of your bulletin. There are three questions there. Uh, one is, uh, why are we to be different? Second is, from whom are we to be different? And then the third is, in what way are we to be different? So why are we to be different? From whom are we to be different? And in what way are we to be different? So the first question is, why? Why? What, what's, the, what's the goal? Well, really, uh, if you look, if you, as we read through Leviticus, chapters 18 through 20 call us to be different from the nations and to be holy as Yahweh is holy. And uh, I want to look at three, three sections, uh, chapter in, two in chapter 18, one in chapter 20. We'll, we'll pick up a little bit of that. But chapter 18, verses 1 through 5, listen to that again. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And then uh, turn over to verse 24. A similar section, a similar call. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. 
But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the sojourner who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations, so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. And then if you'll turn over just one more time to chapter 20, verses 22 to 26, just add this section and notice the similarities here. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. You shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit the land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourself detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me. For I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Now, did, did you notice the emphasis in those passages? There's a lot of similar language there. Maybe it all blurs together after you read it two or three times. But there's an emphasis there. Don't be like the nations, but be holy to Yahweh for a specific reason. It's so that the land will not vomit you out. You may have noticed that strange phrase is repeated multiple times. Uh, to put it differently, God wants his people to be different from the nations so that they might dwell in his presence. This is why uh, seemingly in Leviticus 18, 19, 20, you have religious laws and moral laws all kind of jumbled together because in some sense it's all religious here. The point is if you pollute and profane the land, the land will vomit you out and you will no longer be able to dwell with God. Put it another way, holiness is not an end in itself. Holiness has a trajectory, a goal. The goal of holiness is living in God's presence. The goal is to dwell in God's presence. You know, all these rituals that we've studied in Leviticus 1 through 16, they present uh, what we might call a, a penultimate hope for Israel. That is, it's, it's not the ultimate hope, right? It's not the, it's not the, the end goal but it's a, a penultimate hope. It's not quite complete. Israel can ritually come before God through these sacrifices again and again, day after day. They can ritually come into God's presence, but they want more. Uh, they, they can come before God through the sacrifices, through, the, through a substitute, but they want something else. There is this longing to dwell in God's presence, a longing that we see in Moses' request in Exodus 33, when Moses says to God, show me your glory. You, you may remember in the, in the sacrifices, the animal was accepted in the place of the Israelite. The blameless animal died in the place of blameworthy Israel. And the blameless animal is then transformed by the fire into a pleasing aroma as the smoke ascends up into God's presence. It was a, a way that Israel sort of communed with God by this ritual, by the symbolism of the smoke going up. But ritual entrance into God's presence through an animal is not the goal. In fact, it only heightens the longing for a personal entrance, a personal communion with God. But as Hebrews says very clearly, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. 
Now, some of you may have thought about that verse in Hebrews before, without holiness no one will see the Lord, and, and maybe you've been bothered by this statement as you've read it, because you, you, you might think, wait a minute, okay, I thought God accepted me because of Jesus, not because I somehow become holy. And of course the answer is, well, yeah, God does accept us because of Jesus. God accepts us on the basis of the righteousness of Christ, which is received by faith, but nevertheless, we cannot enter into God's presence apart from being holy. Now, you might think that doesn't make sense, right? But, but actually, it, it does. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10, says this. It's a few verses earlier from the other quote. Hebrews 12, 10 says, uh, God disciplines us for our good that we might share his holiness. God punishes his enemies, but he disciplines his children, and he disciplines us so that we might become holy, so that we might dwell in his presence. God disciplines those he loves. That's what both Proverbs and the book of Hebrews tell us. If God did not love us, if God did not accept us, he would not discipline us, because the end goal of discipline is that we might share his holiness so that we might see him face to face. God, out of his love, is purifying his people that we might dwell in his presence. We approach him now through Christ by the Spirit, but one day we will be completely holy in Christ and we will see him face to face. Now that, that wonderful passage that we read earlier in Ephesians 5 actually says the same thing. Uh, listen, listen carefully again to part of it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, do you see God's agenda in there? Right? Jesus gave himself for the church to sanctify her, verse 26, to make her holy and without blemish, verse 27. Of course, the word sanctify and the word holy, same Greek word, just one's an adjective and one's a verb, and the word holify apparently never caught on, so we use the word sanctify instead, right? And so, but, but notice Jesus' agenda, right? He gave himself to make us holy without blemish, to cleanse us. Notice all the Levitical language there. Gave himself to make us holy, but sanctification, being made holy, is not the end game. Verse 27 says, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. You see, Hebrews says, God disciplines us that we might share his holiness, because without holiness no one will see the Lord. And then Jesus gave himself for us to make us holy, to present us to himself. Do you see the pattern, right? Uh, holiness is not the goal, but God is making us beautiful, that we might dwell in his presence, that we might see him, that we might... Uh, be a delight to him. This is why, this is the, the why of holiness, right? To use the New Testament language, we're being set apart to be the bride of Christ to belong to him. Holiness is about being made beautiful to be Christ's bride. Holiness is like the bride getting ready on her wedding day. You know, the dude's already proposed. She's already said yes. She's not afraid that he's going to turn her away at the altar, but she wants to look beautiful for him. It's not fear that motivates in that holiness in that case, but a longing to delight. That's the why of holiness, that we might dwell with God. In the Old Testament, that meant Israel dwelling in the land, 
But the land was a picture of something better, something more to come. In the New Testament, we understand we are being prepared for a new creation where we will dwell in God's immediate presence forever. We are being made holy by God for that day when we will see him face to face. Which begs the question that I haven't answered quite yet and we'll just answer briefly, which is, well, what is holiness after all? What are we talking about? Being made holy, what does that even mean? The idea of holiness is, is really about wholeheartedly belonging to God. In fact, the picture of a wedding day is pretty appropriate where two people give themselves to one another. Uh, one commentator said, holiness is total consecration of a man's life and labor to God's service. Holy being given over to, to God, to his work, to his purposes. That's another reason why uh, what we normally keep separate, these religious rules in Leviticus 18, 19, and 20, and uh, moral laws also there, they're put together in those chapters. It's not that we can't distinguish these things, but it's that every aspect of life is brought under God's sovereign rule. Nothing's left out. And so we'll see, right, as we go through 18, really all the way up through 25 of Leviticus, every aspect of life is represented. Every aspect of life is brought under God's rule. So we're to be holy, set apart to God, because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Holy, because our holiness is a delight to our Savior. We're to be different because we have this hope of dwelling with our Father forever. Okay, that brings us to the next question. Well, from whom are we to be different? And I'll spend much less time on this point. Chapter 18, again, begins like this. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt. You've heard this a couple times already, where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. See, the Israelites were not to be like their contemporaries. They were not to be like the Egyptians, their former masters, where they once lived. They're not to be like the Canaanites who lived in the land to which God was bringing them. The call, in fact, is very similar to something that we hear in the New Testament, Romans chapter 12, where it says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. Or for former Egyptians and Canaanites recovering sinners like most of us, right? 1 Peter 1 puts it a little differently. It says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't conform to the world. Don't keep living like the gospel isn't true. The world is in rebellion against God. The word world, you know, in Scripture, it, it has a number of meanings. And um, I won't go through them all, but, you know, sometimes the word world just means the created order, the world in which we live. Sometimes the word world means a lot of people, you know, like when we say the whole world is against me, right? We don't literally mean every single person, but just a lot of people, right? But sometimes the word world often refers to the created order in as much as it is in rebellion against God. So the fallen world, the world as we find it now, right? Not the world as God created it to be, but the world as we experience it day by day. In one sense, what that means, it's, it's culture in rebellion against God. When God says, don't be like the Egyptians and don't be like the Canaanites, he's saying, don't be conformed to their culture. We have to be different from the culture around us. Now, in some ways, that's a, a dangerous thing to say because you need to sort of uh, describe what you mean by that. So it immediately begs the next question, which is, well, in what way are we to be different from the world around us? Of course, we can't say everything here. There's a lot that we could say about that. Uh, there are ways in which we are necessarily inculturated in a particular time in a particular place so for example i'm speaking to you in english right now 
right? That's because we're here, not some other place, right? If I were another place in the world, I'd be speaking a different language in that culture, right? So there are certain ways in which it, we, we must be inculturated, right? We must be uh, infleshed, incarnate in a particular culture, in a particular time, in a particular place. I, w- I just want to highlight, though, from this text, three particular ways, three aspects of the call to be different. Three ways we're to not be like the culture around us. And I'll, I'll give them to you before we talk about them. Uh, one is we're, we're to not conform or we're to be different in how we relate to people of the opposite sex. We're to be different from the culture around us in that way. Uh, we're to not conform, we're to be different in our sexual morality. And then we're to not conform, we're to be different in how we relate to God. That, those are three distinct things you'll, you'll see. So first, we're to be different in how we relate to people of the opposite sex. So the, the commands about sexuality begin in verse 6. Verse 6 says, None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. And uh, uncover nakedness is just a, it's a euphemism, right? It's a euphemism for sexual activity. And uh, verse 6 says, Sexual relations between close relatives is immoral. It's wrong. Uh, verse 17 calls it depravity. Then verses 7 through 18 go on to expand on verse 6, detailing what close relatives mean. Okay, uh, if we're not to uncover the nakedness of our close relative, okay, what does that mean? Right, spell that out for me, and God does, verses 7 through 18. Now, in some ways, we're probably more attuned to this than uh, Israel was. Uh, Many of the patriarchs broke these laws. Uh, Just read through Genesis. And uh, probably over half of these laws were broken at some point in the book of Genesis by the patriarchs. Of course, that was before these laws were given. Uh, Even Abraham and Sarah, by the way, were half-brother and sister. Uh, Maybe you didn't pick up on that in Genesis, but Abraham and Sarah were half-brother and sister. So, uh, you know, we're we're probably a little more attuned to the, the need for this than they were. The question, though, is why is it here? Why does God give these laws at this point? What does this have to do with holiness? What does this have to do with being separate from the world? And uh, here's one, one possibility. Uh, the purpose, at least one commentator suggested, was to protect unmarried women living in their family home. So think about this. In that day, people lived with their extended family. And uh, the, the, the women you would be around the most were those in your immediate and in your extended family. And in that day, your only protection was your family. Right? There were no police officers to protect you. Uh, there, there were no police officers to bring people to justice. And so in a world where your only protection was your family, with whom you lived, women were essentially unprotected then from the men in their family who might take advantage of them. And the point is, men are sometimes tempted to look at women around them solely in terms of sexual pleasure. And God in these laws is putting a stop to that kind of approach to opposite-sex relationships. He's saying to Israel, you shouldn't only relate to people of the opposite sex in terms of sex. Women have value as people made in God's image. People are not merely sex objects. Now, thankfully, the human race had so advanced over the past 3,500 years that we don't have this problem anymore. Okay, that was a joke. You're allowed to laugh. 
Okay, actually, we do still have this problem, don't we? Um, those circumstances have changed. We're still tempted to look at people of the opposite sex merely in terms of what they might give us sexually. And it's true, we no longer live in close-knit familial connect communities, but that only means that our eyes roam farer and wider. Now, sex is, is a beautiful God-given gift. God created man and, and woman naked in the garden, and his first command to them was actually to have sex, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. After creating and commanding man in this way, uh, God looked at the world and saw it is said, it is very good. Of course, the book of Proverbs, of all books, has this encouragement uh, to people. He says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. The, the Bible is not prudish about sex. But that doesn't mean that the whole relationship between man and woman is summed up in one activity. It doesn't mean that women are only useful to men for one purpose. It's, it's kind of interesting. The one relationship that's not mentioned here is likely the relationship of a brother and sister. So verse 9, look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. And uh, most commentators will say that's probably referring to half-sisters, which is why it says your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, right? So why is a whole sister not mentioned? I think, I think it's actually because it's assumed, right? In, in every other culture in that day, even that relationship was off-limits. 1 Timothy 5.2, Paul says to Timothy that he is to treat younger women as sisters in all purity. Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. Why? Because your sister is someone you love and care for in a pure way. There may be exceptions to that, right? But that's the way it should be. You're genuinely, genuinely concerned for her good. You're not just trying to get something out of her. And this goes both ways, of course, but, but I, I should speak especially to men. Men, we must genuinely love our sisters. Not because we might get something out of them, but because they are our sisters in Christ. We must think of them not as objects to fulfill sexual desire, but as people to be honored and respected and cherished. And we need to challenge one another against the norm of our culture to do that. And that is going against the norm of our culture, because despite the rhetoric, our culture really promotes one dominant view of, of women. You see it in the movies, you see it in advertising. It's hard to escape the view that women are primarily here to fulfill some kind of desire. It should not be so. It should not be so in the world. It certainly should not be so in the church. We need to be different from the world around us in that respect. The next point, and it is a distinct point, is that we need to be different in our sexual morality. Verses 6 through 18 deal specifically with what we call incest, but verses 19 through 23 move on to other things. Verse 19 describes sexual relations without concern for Levitical purity, so makes one unclean. Verse 20 describes sexual relations without love for neighbor, and so it makes one unclean. And, and of course, remember, uncleanness is the real problem here, in one sense, because of God's desire to dwell in the midst of his people, and he cannot dwell with uncleanness. 
We'll come back to verse 21 in a minute. Verse 22, uh, certainly the most controversial in our culture. Verse 22 says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Verse 23, though, for the most part, is still accepted as normal or as abnormal. Sorry. Still accepted as abnormal and a perversion, as the text says. Now, someone who suggests that these activities, especially these last two of homosexuality and bestiality, uh, someone who says that they were practiced by the pagan religions of that day, that, that's right, that's true. Pagan religions used these types of things in their worship. Uh, verses 19 through 23, in contrast to 6 through 18, is probably addressing specific pagan worship practices of the day. Uh, but someone who suggests that, therefore, these laws are really irrelevant for us is definitely wrong. Uh, these sexual practices were declared abominable. That is something God hates and perversion. The, the, the language of abomination, by the way, it's mostly reserved for three things in Scripture. Idolatry, child sacrifice, and homosexual behavior. And, and it's reserved for those three because each is a clear distortion of God's intention for the created order. God intended for us to worship Him and not idols. God intended us for us to love our children and nurture them and care for them and not kill them and sacrifice them. God intended sexual relations to be between man and woman, not man and man. Uh, bestiality would fit in here as well, right? Because both go against the natural and, and, dare I say, the intuitive order of creation. And so it's important to note that just because homosexuality and bestiality in this passage are associated with pagan practice, uh, that doesn't mean that those practices are therefore okay for us outside of that pagan context. The argue, that's the argument some make. Well, outside of a pagan context, it's okay. The whole point for Israel is that they are not to be like their pagan neighbors. They're to be different. The fact that, pagan, that, that, that these were pagan sacrifices should give us pause. <laughs> the very least, right? The truth of the matter is, as you look at the ancient cultures, Israel alone had a complete prohibition against homosexuality. Most of the pagan nations allowed some form of it in and out of worship. But Israel was different because Yahweh was their God, right? That's the difference. Yahweh was their God. The God who created the world and created the order of the world calls us to live in that order. Now, it's interesting in our present moment that really we, we only question, we don't question any of these restrictions to sexual behavior except the one of, about homosexuality. So all the others we would pretty much agree with. Well, that's not quite true. Okay, someone might question, uh, we might question uh, verse 19, the restriction about uncovering a woman's nakedness while in her menstrual impurity. And in, in fact, that law does kind of seem to stand out. It's different from the others, isn't it? Uh, but the context of Leviticus 15, if you're reading through Leviticus, the context of Leviticus 15 seems to explain the presence of this law here. It's a ritual prohibition about blood, something that was very significant throughout Leviticus. Well, Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, for that matter, uh, don't describe the standard for right relationships. They just describe the deviations from the norm practiced by the pagans of that day. The standard is found in other places in Scripture, like Genesis 1 and 2, which lays out the created order, which God then calls us to live in light of. The purity, though, of the relationship between man and woman begins to disintegrate pretty much immediately after Adam and Eve's initial disobedience. And every culture after that, except Israel's, 
sanctions some form of these sexually deviant behaviors. The question for us is, who will set the standard for our behavior? Will the surrounding culture or will Yahweh our God? Who sets the standard? We are to be different in our sexual morality. That doesn't necessarily, by the way, determine exactly what our civil laws should look like today. I mean, those are good questions that require thoughtful engagement. But it does determine what our morality should look like. The church should stand out as not conforming to the pattern of the world. Finally, we need to be different in how we relate to God. Uh, Verses 19 through 23 are all about relating to God. Uh, The pagans did use these sexual practices in worship. Uh, They thought performing certain kinds of practices would appease their God or please their God so that their God would grant them some looked-for blessing. That was the purpose of child sacrifice in verse 21. You would offer your sacrifice on the altar, uh, offer your child as a sacrifice on the altar, which showed that you were holding nothing back from God, and you expected in return God to bless you in some way, maybe give you victory over your enemies, maybe give you a fertile crop that year. The point is, both the, the deviant sexual behavior in those verses and the child sacrifice were for the same purpose, to manipulate God into giving what you want. And uh, here's the way this looks today, right? One way is, is we begin to sacrifice to the gods of this world. We do that, subtle ways, different ways. Uh, and the question is, what, what do you sacrifice so that the gods of this world will look on you with favor and give you what you want? Uh, whether those gods are your advisors or your employers or your friends or the god of random chance and hoped for wishes, whatever it is, you know, what are you willing, where are you willing to compromise to get our culture's blessing in order to have a good and easier life in the present. That's what's going on here. In the end, it all amounts to Molech worship. I'm trying to manipulate something out there, some force out there to give me what I want. And I'm willing to do anything to manipulate in that way. Uh, Another way we try to manipulate the system is, is we begin to bargain with God. And uh, have you, have you ever done that before? You know, uh, God, if you'll give me this, I'll give you that. Uh, God, if you give me this spouse, I'll go into ministry. God, if you help me pass this test, I'll spend Friday night serving in a homeless shelter, whatever it is, right? Sometimes we think that by our actions, we can manipulate God. If I offer him this, he'll give me that. And because of our distorted understanding of life, what we offer to God sometimes gets stranger and stranger. Uh, God has to repeatedly say throughout Israel's history, I did not command you to sacrifice your children. In fact, it never even entered my mind. Again and again, God says that in Scripture. But if we feel that we must do something to get in God's favor, and and the more we sense our own sin and failure, the more we sense the incompleteness of life, the more desperate we become, the more drastic our vows become, and the more insane the things become that we promise. Sacrificing your child seems to be the extreme. But God did not intend for us to sacrifice our children in order to get in good with him. In part, because he always planned to sacrifice his son that we might enjoy his favor. You know, the Bible, from one perspective, is all about child sacrifice, isn't it? It's just not quite the kind offered to Molech. Uh, For one, Jesus was a willing sacrifice. He chose to come into the world to bear our sin. For another, Jesus was a blameless sacrifice. People offer their sinful child in the place of a sinful parent, but Jesus was the righteous in place of the unrighteous in order to bring us to God. 
Finally, normally in, in child sacrifice in that day, it was about a man manipulating God to get his favor. But in the sacrifice of Jesus, God was offering his own sacrifice for our sins that he might reconcile us to himself. No one's manipulating God in that case. The father sends his son to satisfy his own justice for our sin. You know, from one perspective, of course, child sacrifice was unthinkable to God. Repeatedly, God says, it never came into my mind that, 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 that you would even do such a thing. But what God did not expect from us, he was willing to do for us. God was willing to do the unthinkable in order to reconcile us to himself, to sacrifice his son for our sin that we might have his favor. It's only as we rest in the sacrifice of Christ that we can actually rest from trying to gain God's favor, from trying to win it by something we do through some outlandish promise or self-inflicted sacrifice. Only when we see that he has sacrificed all for us can we rest. It's important that we understand what this means because whether we are sexually deviant or religiously manipulative, forgiveness is available through Jesus. The truth of the matter is, God calls us out on all kinds of behavior, doesn't he? Uh, in fact, the, the Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, applies the abomination language a little more broadly to things that hit a little closer to home for some of us. Things like pride and lying lips and unjust business practices. Because whether you are perverting the order of creation or ripping off your customers or you're just an arrogant jerk, all of us alike stand condemned before God, because we haven't lived up to God's holiness, his perfection, his love. But all of us alike can be forgiven through Jesus as well. And of course, it needs to be said, especially in light of our forgiveness because of Jesus, we need to love those with whom we differ here. You know, sometimes we think that being different means being angry. And uh, we, we must show to others the same grace and patience that God has shown to us whether to the person trapped in porn use who only sees people of the opposite sex as, as sex objects, or to the homosexual who, who deviates from God's created order, or to the, the person who uh, has an abortion and sacrifices their child literally to their earthly convenience. We must show the same grace to them, the same patience to them that we have been shown. We must not conform to the pattern of this world. We must not allow the culture to set the standard for our sexual behavior. We must not try to manipulate the God of heaven or bow down to the gods of this age. Do not be conformed, the scriptures say, to the pattern of this world. But as Peter tells us, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, earlier we talked about the goal of being different, the goal of holiness, the idea that without holiness, no one can see the Lord. And again, it still might seem frustrating, but John actually puts it a little bit different in 1 John uh, chapter 3. John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. See, amazingly, what that verse tells us is that holiness is not only the requirement for seeing God, it's also the result of seeing God. God gives what he requires. To be holy is to be different from the world. We are of the world. We're intrinsically like the world. How do we become something other than what we are? We spend time with our Father. 
The more time we spend gazing at our Father, the more we become like Him. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4. He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Right? Gaze on Christ. That's how we are changed. Gaze upon the Son who was sacrificed for you, and you will become like Him. That's why we know that when He returns, we will be like Him, because we will see Him as He is. We will be holy because we will see our holy God and be transformed into His image. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we long to be like You. We long to be uh, not like the world, not conforming to the sin and the rebellion in the world, but conform to your holy image, conform to your love, conform to your justice, conform to your goodness, conform to your peace and your wisdom. Father, we pray that, that as we gaze on Christ, you would change us and transform us into the image of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.